This episode of Multiple Calls is brought to you by Smoothbore Cartel, a firefighter-owned and operated company that uses a high percentage of their sales to fund the engine company resurrection scholarship, sending firefighters to training all over the country. Swag options include t-shirts, hoodies, beanies, hats, patches, decals, and challenge coins. Sign up for notifications on the website to be alerted when new items and restock are available. And check out the merch at smoothboardcartel.com, Facebook, and Instagram. Welcome to episode 35 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. The archetype of firefighter is esteemed, romanticized, and double-edged. It acts as an ideal to aim and strive for while simultaneously causing disenchantment and disheartening when the curtain is finally pulled back for the newly initiated. In reality, the fire service is made up of people like any other industry. Even those pushing the upper limits of passion and love for their work are fallible and will fall short in varying degrees, around the station and on jobs. Some are legends, but none are gods. However, there are also people that don't love their work. People that make it a point each shift to make themselves feel better by making others feel worse. Harsher still are the cases where someone is harmed emotionally and or physically by those that they and the community they serve trusted implicitly. There is so much more good than bad, but just like the calls we run, That's the balance that is required to approach breaking even in our hearts and minds. And just like on the calls we run, we can and should always strive to do better. My guest this episode was disenchanted, disheartened, and disrespected in the harshest of ways. But through her own strength, the support of others, and her undying love and desire for the fire service, she was able to come through it to find the good, be embraced by it, and eventually join the fight for its survival. Here's my chat with Allie Rothrock. Hi there. Good morning. Hey, Allie. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Good. Happy to connect. Yeah. So I am from a little town in central Pennsylvania. Um, I grew up with a mom and a dad and a younger sister. The town that I grew up in was really unique in a good way. Um, We had a giant university as a part of that town but if you removed the university from the town it would just be you know farms and cows and trees so I kind of got the best of both worlds I feel like had the wide open spaces lots of room to breathe and move and learn and explore but also had some of the cool advantages that comes from having a 50,000 kid university basically in your backyard so it was a great upbringing and really set a wonderful foundation for everything that I do now. Were you into sports or hobbies as a kid? I was never into sports. I used to say my sister got 100% of the athletic genes from my parents and I got zero. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that's definitely how it felt. My sister excelled in so many sports and I was much more the reader and the writer, you know, at recess, I would just pick a book and sit somewhere and read outside rather than doing anything else. So that was very much my world. I did get into figure skating for many, many years. So that was the closest I got to a sport until firefighting. And what about school? What was that experience like? With school, I was very much 
the reader and the writer again. So I loved English. I loved language arts. I loved history. Math and science were not so much for me. I've definitely had to get better at those things, especially running two businesses, you know, had to get really a lot more comfortable with accounting and numbers and math and all of that. But school for me was fairly easy. Middle school was rough. I think it is for most people. When I got to high school, I finally was able to find a group of people that I fit in with. And I found that in the high school theater club. And those became my people. Those are my people in high school. It gave me a place to fit. It gave me something to do. It gave me something to be a part of. So that was really my favorite part of school. Did you have any guides or mentors looking back? I would say my parents are my biggest guides and mentors. I mean, other than being there every day of my life, they have been my biggest inspiration and guide. My parents have owned a business for my whole life. So when I went into business myself, I had already grown up seeing what it looked like to run a business. So I was, I'm incredibly grateful for just having that influence around me for as long as I can remember. I didn't have a lot of mentors in firefighting until much more of the later years, until I started to travel and speak and get to know more people than just who I grew up around. I had an English teacher that was really informative and formative for me. But I do remember probably my most influential teacher was actually my fourth grade teacher. And he was somebody who saw how much I loved to write. That was really the only thing I wanted to do in school. And instead of getting in trouble for that or trying to change that, he found creative ways for me to be able to explore how much I love to write. And I think that kind of being nourished in that at a really young age gave me a lot of confidence in the first book that I would write and even to the second book that I'm writing now. And what about jobs before the fire service? When did you start working and what did you get into? My first job was a pool attendant at a local hotel. All I did was sit and give people towels. I wasn't even a lifeguard. I just made sure there were clean towels to give people and clean the bathroom. So that was my first job. Then I got into waitressing. I was a server for many, many, many years. And that started before firefighting as well. And what was your first exposure to the fire service? My very first exposure to the fire service. I mean, if we're going to count TV and movies, which we know are not the most accurate representations of the job. I would say my first real experience that I remember being aware and really taken by the job was a TV show that used to be on NBC called Third Watch. And I was watching that really the summer leading up to when I joined the fire service, not really watching it with the intention of becoming a firefighter. I just knew that I was really, really captivated and drawn and felt led to know more about what that was. No one in my family is a firefighter, although I did find out sort of recently that my great-grandfather was a fire chief. Not that he really counts in my recent lineage. I wasn't in firehouses when I was little. You know, I didn't have a dad or a mom or a brother or a sister that was in and out of the fire station. So my very, really first exposure firsthand was in my little hometown. And they were having an open house, like most volunteer firehouses do. Come try on gear, come get on the fire truck, come hold a fire hose and put out this little tiny fire to see what it's like. And we did that just because it was a Sunday and I think it was a beautiful day and my parents were looking for something to do. So we went to this little open house and that was when everything just solidified for me. 
And that's kind of, even though I wasn't sworn into the fire company until a couple weeks later, I kind of count that as my first day because that's really when I got hooked. So what was the process in those two weeks to have such a quick turnover and sign up? In the volunteer fire service, it just kind of depends on, I guess, what their setup is. But with this, I just filled out an application. They voted on me on their next you know, monthly meeting. And that was that. I got gear that didn't fit. I got a pager, a locker. And I was 16. I didn't have a driver's license yet. So I would ride my bike to fire calls or one of my parents would drive me. That was how I started just furiously pedaling to try to get to the firehouse before the trucks left. Walk me now into that experience of being 16 and coming into the fire station and the veil pulled back, so to speak. You know, I grew up really privileged in a way. I was always safe. I always trusted my safety. I always trusted the adults that were around me. I had grown up without ever having to question any of that. And that's not a lot of people's experience. And so I'm really grateful that I had that. But what that experience kind of set me up for was when I found myself in an environment where I wasn't always safe, where I didn't know who I could trust, that was understandably shocking, especially as such a young person. And obviously, we know firefighting is inherently dangerous. That's just a part of what we sign up for. But in this firehouse, I really quickly realized that I wasn't in danger just from the nature of the job. I was in danger because of the people that I did that job with. And, you know, as a 31 year old, I can look back and have so much just gentleness and understanding for that younger version of myself for not knowing the environment that she had walked into. But in this station and in other stations that I have been in since, these firefighters had a really clear expectation of how they wanted me to be. Other female firefighters that they had interacted with up until that point had maybe acted in a certain way. And they thought, here's Allie. She's a girl. That's all we need to know about her. We're going to try to make her fit into these expectations that we have. And it became really clear to me immediately that they weren't interested in me because of the abilities that I had to be a good firefighter. They weren't interested in me because they wanted to teach me. They weren't interested in that. They wanted me there for something to look at, for someone to entertain them. And they wanted me to do things with them that made me incredibly uncomfortable that I immediately and always refused But the more that I refused their advances, the worse and more dangerous the environment became for me. And as a 16-year-old, as someone who had never experienced treatment like that, I didn't know how significantly it was impacting me because we don't really with trauma. In the work that I do now, I work in trauma and in crisis situations very, very often. And we don't usually know at the time how bad something is because we're just trying to get through it. We're just trying to survive it. And I remember thinking so clearly, if I can just get to the next day, if I can just get to the next call, if I can just be stronger and smarter and faster and better, then maybe at some point they'll stop treating me the way that they are. And they'll see that I deserve to be here, that I have met every standard. I've passed every test. I can do this. But the longer that I stayed and the more I kind of stood up against that stereotype and said, I don't think I have to change who I am to be here. I think who I am and how I am and the way that I want to be treated is okay. And I'm not going to change that just because you're telling me that I have to. And the more that we kind of fought 
the worse the behavior became. And so I was at that first firehouse for three years from when I was 16, 17, 18, and finally, you know, graduated from high school and could move away. And those three years of my life were incredibly traumatic and incredibly damaging, but I didn't have an understanding of the ways that I'd been affected until many years later. So when did you start to notice and how did it creep up into your awareness? I went away to college. I wrote my first book. I had done everything that I knew how to do with the coping skills that I had at the time, with the understanding of myself, of the world, of trauma that I had at the time. And I thought that the way you overcome things is you just sort of put them to rest. You just sort of stop thinking about them. You don't talk about them anymore. You decide that you want to move on and the rest of you, the rest of your brain will follow. And that was true for a while. I wrote my first book, which was about my beginnings in the fire service. I started to travel a little bit to start to share my story. But the story I was sharing was just really about standing up to those expectations and those stereotypes and keeping the love that I had for the fire service when I started. But the story that I was telling was sort of half realized because I wasn't exploring the ways that I'd been affected. And I didn't realize that we have to square with stuff that happens to us. It can be dormant for a while. But eventually, you're going to have to square with things, or it's going to start to affect lots of different areas of your life. And I kind of liken it to when you get a splinter. If it's deep enough, maybe you can't get to it. You can't dig it out. And so you just leave it. And it just sits in your body until your body decides that it wants to push it out. And that splinter will come back to the surface eventually. And that's kind of how these experiences were for me. I pushed them really, really far away. And the sexual violence and experiencing a sexual assault and these things, these were things that I didn't know how to talk about and I had a lot of shame around. And so it wasn't until a couple of years after all of that, I had gone back into the fire service because I still loved it so much as I do to this day and began to have some similar experiences with some men who really just believed in their heart of hearts that women do not belong in the fire service. And so I started to have some experiences that felt really similar to the trauma that my brain had experienced before. And those experiences were really the trigger that forced that splinter to the surface, forced these experiences that I hadn't processed with anyone who knew about trauma. It really forced me to have to reckon with them. And if it was possible to outwill trauma, I would have done it. Because I was just white knuckling my way every day through this fear that had become really present in my life. I never really felt like I was safe. I didn't know who I would be safe around. I didn't know who I could trust. I had all this fear because the experience that I'd had taught my brain that I wasn't always safe when I thought I was. And so this was really the beginnings of that splinter coming to the surface. And I should have dealt with it right then and there. I knew about therapy. I knew about counselors. But I thought, because I don't know how to explain all of this, because I don't have the right words, maybe for what happened, or I still had a lot of shame around being a woman in the fire service, because that was always told to me by these people who were so abusive is, this is happening to you because you're here, because you don't belong here. And if you would just leave, the problem would go away. So to put it another way, you are the problem. 
what we're doing is not the problem. And so I had a lot of shame around that, that my brain learned. And when I really started to struggle with my mental health, it was because of how long I was trying to deal with these experiences, basically by not dealing with them. And it became more than my brain and my body could cope with. And I started having a lot of problems sleeping. I started having a lot of problems eating. I wasn't tired. I didn't want to sleep because I would have nightmares. I had hives a lot, which I had never had before. I didn't know what that was about. I just started to have all of these symptoms that at first I could kind of explain away as if they weren't related. But eventually I got so sick of it and got sick of just being by myself. Like I had just created this island for myself because it felt safer. But eventually I just realized you have to do something else here because what you're doing isn't working. And that led me to Jill, who is my trauma therapist. Before we get there, let me just back up. You said you were the first person in your family to enter into the fire service. You didn't have anybody with prior knowledge. So what was your parents, your family, your friends' opinion of you wanting to get into this work? What was the sense from them? Absolute shock. Because like I said, I was a figure skater. You know, it's not exactly a linear leap. And also, like I said, I wasn't particularly athletic. So people would be confused. Wait, is it Allie that joined the fire service? No, you mean like Allie's sister because she was the one that was the athlete. And everyone was like, no, no, it was Allie. So everyone was surprised as much as I was. Like I said, it wasn't something that I saw for myself, but it truly was just one of those things where it was always what I was meant to do. It was like we were on a trajectory for each other for a long time. And I didn't know it until I was standing in fire gear on that first day at that open house. And so it was definitely surprising for anyone and everyone who knew me, but it just became, oh, Allie's a firefighter. That's how it was known. And when you're a volunteer firefighter in a small town, everybody knows who those people are because those are people you want to know, right? Because if you crash your car or your house is on fire, it's your neighbor from down the street that's going to come on the fire truck to put it out. So it became a very known thing also because I just stood out a lot because I wasn't like the other people that were the volunteer firefighters because of my gender. And through those years and the traumas that occurred over and over again, at what point did you reach out to family and friends? At what point did you make people aware? What kind of perspectives and guidance were you being given? Well, one of the things that I speak about a lot these days is at what point do you need to reach out for help? It's important to be tenacious. It's important to not walk away when something gets hard. These are good attributes to have. But I think, and I can say this now as an adult looking back, I think I stayed in an environment that was hurting me too long because I was trying to prove a point. I was trying to prove that I'm not going to walk away from this just because, you know, you're telling me that I have to. I think I deserve to be here. And so I'm going to keep showing up. And while that's admirable, it kept me in an environment that was hurting me for too long. And I think another choice that I made that I caution other people against, or at least can say I would have done this differently, is I made a choice really early on that I wasn't going to tell my parents all the bad treatment that was going on. Because I thought that number one, they would rightfully make me stop going because it got out of hand so quickly. But two, I thought in my stubbornness, which is sometimes good and sometimes not helpful, that I could figure it out on my own. I felt like I am here in this environment because I decided and this is a problem that is mine and mine alone to deal with, which was not true. 
And it wasn't until my first book came out that my parents really learned the full scope of things, which is not the right way to tell somebody something, but that's just kind of how it happened. My parents knew that things were hard and they knew that um, there was some treatment that wasn't great and they did their best with what I had told them in terms of trying to talk to the leadership and that never went anywhere because the leadership was not interested in addressing any of what was going on. The leadership was participating in the behavior. So the guidance and the support that I kind of cut myself off from by not being honest with what was going on, that sort of came after. That came when my first book came out because it was all really in there. And then I did my first TED Talk in February of 2019. And that was the first time that extended family members and family friends and people really got to know the full extent of the trauma. That's where they heard it for the first time. Just a 13-minute TED Talk that you can watch on YouTube now. They were hearing it for the first time, but I was not new to telling the story. And so that's when a lot of the comfort or just words of encouragement came because people were learning kind of the full breadth of what happened. With no one before in your family having insight into the fire service, you're the first person to cross that barrier. And this is your initial experience. So how did you not then feel that this is the fire service as a whole? How did you have perspective? Did you initially feel that way? And why not just run from the career completely? And I'm sure once your family became aware of this, your choice to go back. So walk me through that. That's a great question. Why didn't I just turn and run? It was sort of two experiences. The first experience that I think solidified me to the emergency services in one way, shape, or form forever was my very first fire call, which happened to be a fatal car accident where a five-year-old girl died. I am on a fire engine for the first time. I don't know anything about anything. And my very first call was this fatal car accident. And I remember looking at her, of course, since I knew how to do nothing, I wasn't doing anything but standing there. I think I was giving out rubber gloves to people. And I watched them do CPR and I watched everybody work together. And I kind of took stock of myself after that first call and realized that I didn't have the urge to run away. I didn't have the urge to turn away. I didn't have the urge to throw up or cry. All I wanted to do was to know what decisions were made and be a part of the efforts to save her life. And I felt like if I can stick with this job, I can become trained to the level of knowing what to do to help the next time something like that happens. And so that experience really happened, in my mind, independent of the men who didn't want me in their station. That was an experience that I had that really served as this guiding light. Even though she did not live, it gave me something to look to to say, sometime at some point, I'm going to get to help save somebody's life. And I want to stick around long enough to do that. And so that happened right out of the gate. And then about two or three years later, when I was just absolutely at that point of thinking, 100%, this is the fire service, because I had no reason to think otherwise. But I had this hope that maybe I just got unlucky with where I lived and the environment in my first firehouse. Maybe if I just hung in long enough, I could see that it was different someplace else. 
And so one day my mom was sitting in the orthodontist office. My sister was getting her braces on and she was flipping through a magazine. It was Newsweek or Time or something. And there was an interview in that magazine with the fire chief of the San Francisco Fire Department. And that fire chief was a woman. And my mom came home and said, Allie, you will never guess who I just learned about. And it was as if she was telling me about the queen or Beyonce or someone like of that level in my mind, who I was just like, this woman is a rock star and I have to meet her. I have to talk to her because she has found a way somehow to make it through what I am going through because I wasn't naive at the time enough to think that this environment or this sexist attitude, I knew that it was present sort of everywhere in one way, shape or form. And so I knew that she must have encountered it at some point in her career, even in a small way. And she had found a way to persevere through it. So I did some really good Google searching and I found the email of her secretary. And I emailed her secretary and her secretary emailed me back, gave me the fire chief's email. I sent this email that I still have to this day. And she emailed me back and she said, I'd like to talk to you on the phone. Let's find a time. So we talked on the phone again. Imagine me. And who she was to me at the time, how thrilled I was. I mean, she was this light for me, this hope. And she invited me to come to San Francisco for a week. She said, I will introduce you to as many female firefighters working on the day that you're here, which is a lot. You will eat in firehouses. You will be in firehouses constantly. I am going to show you how good this job can be. And so I went to San Francisco for a week and she indeed showed me how good this job could be. I met more female firefighters than I even knew existed and was treated with warmth and love and acceptance. And so that was the beacon that kept me going, that I knew that a place like that existed. And if it existed in San Francisco, it had to exist in other places. I just needed to find them. You mentioned finally meeting Jill, your therapist. Walk me through from realizing that what happened to you was wrong starting the path to healing, meeting her, and how you processed everything and found some closure, I guess. So it's really interesting because Jill is someone who I knew before she was my therapist, and I've stayed in touch with her since. Um, I grew up with her as my next door neighbor. And I knew, just like you have a vague idea of what adults do for a living, I knew that she was a counselor. I didn't know that there were different kinds. I didn't know what kind she was. But when I had been struggling with my mental health to the point where I was so sick of it that I was willing to try therapy, even though I did not think it would work for me because I was just convinced that I was going to stay stuck mentally where I was. I didn't see a path forward. I reached out to her for help and I got so lucky because it's not always that you connect with the first therapist that you sit down in front of. That's not the norm really. And I try to prepare people for that when I talk about finding a good therapist. You know, it has to be someone that's a right fit for you. And if it's not, try someone else. Don't just give up and say, well, I'm done trying to get help. No, keep trying. So I found her and she was just so exactly what I needed at the time. And through the process of writing the book that I'm writing now, I actually had a follow-up conversation with Jill about a month ago about the early work that we had done together. And this was back in 2013 that we first started working together. And I asked her, what do you remember about that first session? 
what do you remember about me? What do you remember about what I said? Because I have my own memories of it, but I want to make sure that I'm remembering it all completely. And it was so interesting to hear her perspective. And now that I've moved into the trauma counseling community myself, I can look at that experience through her eyes in, in a new way with kind of a new appreciation. And she just said that I was so closed off and shut down and I had so much shame and blame on myself for what happened to me. You really, really needed to know that number one, what happened to you was real. It does count as trauma. And she walked me through why. And two, she said, I needed to know that what happened was not my fault. And becoming a sexual assault counselor, working in the domestic violence realm, all the trauma work that I do now, that is a theme every single time, regardless of how the trauma happened or who did it to you. We need to know that what happened was not our fault. That was huge for me at the time. And that was something that I had to really work through. And Jill said that that's where the majority of our work needed to begin was just around validation. Just her validating that what had happened to me was wrong. It was as bad as it felt. And it made sense that I needed help processing it. And so that was really the beginning of our work together. And Jill gave me this incredible gift on that first day of a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know that might seem weird as why is that a gift? Why is that a good thing? But what she gave me with that diagnosis was she gave me a name for what I had been dealing with. She connected all the dots in my mind that I couldn't connect. She organized all the symptoms that I had under this known diagnosis of a known thing that happens. And it was a known process of how to unlearn that stuff. The work that we did together completely put my life on a different trajectory. And it was hard work. I will not lie. It is hard to unlearn the things that you have learned to be ashamed of. It's hard to unlearn the things that you've learned to be scared of. It's hard to learn to trust yourself and to trust the world around you when that trust has been broken. I'm so lucky to still have a relationship with Jill now, to have a friendship with her. Her husband is actually a minister who performed the wedding ceremony of my husband and I. So she was there for that. And so that was just a really cool day to have her there Um, knowing that all the work that she had allowed me to do um, allowed me to kind of move into this new um, healthy, happy space. When did journaling become part of your healing process? To say you're a journaler is a bit of an understatement. You're pretty prolific. (laughs) You found this thing that obviously was crucial for you. So talk to me about it. So I'm sitting in my office now and I'm looking at a bookshelf that has 92 full journals on it. I'm on my 93rd now. A couple months before I became a firefighter, I just picked up a journal and started writing down what my day was. I was a pool attendant at the time, my first job. So I would just write about who I met, how hot it was sitting out in the sun, my legs got sunburned. I was just kind of documenting my day. And it was just this thing that I picked up and became a really natural part of my day was documenting what happened. There wasn't much to say, but it was just this habit. And it was as if the universe or God or whatever you want to say was saying, hi, you're really going to need this in a couple of months. And so I want you to get in the habit of doing it now. And so when I became a firefighter, I picked up my very first journal. I'm looking at it right now. And I wrote down what that first day felt like. 
how heavy the gear was, what a firehouse smells like, who I talked to, what I did, how excited I was to have found the thing that I felt I was put on this earth to do, documenting what falling in love with something felt like. And then very quickly, within just a couple of weeks, that blank page became the only place where I was recording the full truth about what was happening. That was my coping skill throughout trauma. I didn't know what coping skills were, but I know now that if you have just one and it's substantial enough, that can be enough to keep your head above water until you can find something else. For me, journaling was this lifeline. It was the ultimate safe place for me. And I thought, if I can write down what happened today, then no one can ever tell me that it didn't happen because I wrote it down. I dated it. It happened. And no one can ever take it away from me. My first three years in the fire service at that first firehouse took up about 24 journals. And compiling those is what became my first book. So journaling these days for me is nothing more than just my favorite way to start the day. I'm a very busy person. So I have a lot to kind of keep straight in my mind. And journaling is how I start my everyday. I get to my desk way before the sun comes up these days as I'm editing my second book. But before I open that manuscript, I still start by just putting pen to paper and documenting what's going on in my life. And it is just my favorite way to stay grounded and my favorite way to keep a routine. If I'm traveling, which of course I haven't been recently, it's just my favorite thing. I do it every single day and it just keeps me in this really great clear headspace. When did all the personal work that you had ventured into to heal from what you went through? When did you recognize that it kind of clicked, that you felt different, that you had succeeded, so to speak? And then how did that then transition into you wanting to get into the trauma world and help others? Ever since my first book came out, which was in 2010, I've been starting to share my story. I did it at book clubs. I did it at the college that I graduated from. And then I started to do it more and more in the fire service space talking about the ways that we need to make our firehouses better, talking about improvements that need to be made in our culture was not something that was being received really at all in 2010. That first fire call that I spoke about with that five-year-old, another reason that that experience was so incredibly formative for me was when I looked back on it and realized there was no mental health help offered to us then. None that I was aware of. There was no SISM team. There was no peer support. There were no counselors brought in. I don't even know that it was acknowledged that what we had seen was potentially, you know, upsetting. And so when I was doing that personal work with Jill and I started to get to a solid place, I realized that I wanted to work in that space of advocacy because having Jill stand in that place with me changed my life. It changed the trajectory that I was on. And so I wanted to figure out how to do that for people as well. And so the very first place that my advocacy kind of started was in a domestic violence shelter. I became a sexual assault and DV counselor. I worked in a shelter. I responded to the hospital to be with survivors of sexual assault when they first came in and made a report that they'd been assaulted. I was in that space as primarily a crisis counselor, so not someone who was doing long-term work with someone, but to be there in the moments like, you are fresh from trauma, let's talk about how you are and just get you to a place where you feel like you have your feet on the ground. But that really kind of catapulted me into a place where I was really interested in how trauma affects our bodies and our minds. And that put me into a place of when I was sharing my story, I wasn't then just talking about 
the events. I was talking about that little girl and mental health and really starting to draw parallels between your trauma could come from a person. It could come from an experience on a call. Our bodies and our minds are going to feel it in similar ways. And I started to really realize what a significant gap there was in the emergency services in terms of talking about our mental health, in terms of education that's tailored to first responders. And so when I first started as an advocate, I you know, became a DV and SA counselor. I went back to school and got a trauma responder certificate, which took about a year. And then from that, I decided that I wanted to go on and get you know a full psychology degree in crisis counseling. Being in the different spaces of advocacy, whether for trauma survivors or in so much of my work these days, is just educating first responders on mental health. I think every time I do that, which is a lot through the work that I do, I think of my younger self. I think of my 16, 17, 18-year-old self and tell her, look, we made it to the other side. And not only did we make it to the other side, but we went back to that environment to that profession, and we're finding a way to make it better for other people. That's what the success looks like and feels like to me now. When you started traveling and speaking to other first responders about mental health, what was the positive and negative feedback that you've had over the years? Primarily, it's been positive. The changes that I've just noticed would be, you know, in 2010 or that time frame, there were conferences that I wouldn't even be accepted to speak in like a little breakout room. But these days, I keynote those conferences. And so that to me shows that there's been a significant change in what people are willing to listen to and what people are willing to hear about. You know, when I joined the fire service in 2005, there was nothing about post-traumatic stress, cumulative stress, vicarious trauma, what's PTSD and what's not. There was nothing on that. And the mindset which it still is in plenty of places, is if you feel impacted by a call, then don't run calls. You can't do this job. This job isn't for you. And if you do feel impacted, you better not tell anybody about it because we don't want to hear about it. And if you are impacted, don't tell anybody because you're going to get a lot of judgment for it. What we know now, just statistically or anecdotally, is that after a significant call, everyone is feeling it to some degree for varying lengths of time. And by not talking about it, by not acknowledging it, you make everyone think that they're dealing with it alone and that there's something wrong with them when so much better cohesion in our departments can come from just a very simple acknowledgement that you had just witnessed or participated in something that could be upsetting. We don't even have to put the word traumatizing on it. Just upsetting, bothersome. Some things are just objectively hard to watch or hard to look at. So we don't have to put those words on it quite yet, but just that simple acknowledgement. And so I think the response has been, I just get told thank you a lot, which is so nice for that younger version of myself who was hurt so much by this profession to hear every time I share my story Every time I talk about the work that I do and the business that I started to solve a problem that I experienced firsthand in the fire service, whether that's the lack of mental health help or the fact that we need to make fire stations safer, people just say thank you a lot. Every time I hear it, it's like I hear it for the first time. It's just so incredibly meaningful to me. How difficult was it to get your first book created and then now walk me into the second book? 
So the first book I self-published, I did the usual things you do when you have a book you think could be important. I tried to get a literary agent, tried to get a publishing company to publish it. I had some really good feedback, but one notable piece, uh, (laughs) the Twilight franchise was big at the time. So there was a publisher that was like, this is great. We love it. We're going to put vampires in it. (laughs) And I was like, it's a memoir. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Going to put vampires in it. So (laughs) that just showed me that I really feel that self-publishing was the right move for that book. Um, That meant that I had to earn and then pay thousands and thousands of dollars to do all of the things that you have to do when you self-publish a book to make it legitimate. You have to register it with the Library of Congress. That costs money. You have to get it its own little serial number. That costs money. All the things, let alone the actual printing and binding. So self-publishing that was perfect for what the story was. I needed to just get it out of me and give it away. And I immediately saw such a response from people who got messages out of it that I didn't even intentionally put in it. I was just telling the story. When I published the book, I mean, it consumed my life for a while because I had to work so many jobs and was doing so much work to just get the book to be a real thing that you could hold in your hands. And then when it was real in December of 2010, it was kind of like, okay, now what? And I just felt like if I just keep following this story and keep being the person who's brave enough to tell it, I'll always, always, always find my way. I mean, that's the reason that I started standing on stages in front of people. And that is what's continued to be my path for the last 11 years. Like I said, keynoting the biggest firefighting conferences in the country. Now, that's because I have always just followed the truth of my story. For the last decade, I've been writing another book, just writing things that felt important, meaning that I made from trauma, lessons that I learned. I don't know exactly when it occurred to me that that little tiny voice that kind of was whispering like, hey, what if you don't self-publish this book again? What if you actually try to do the thing? What if you actually try to get an agent and a book deal? That was terrifying because it happened so rarely. I knew I could self-publish it, but what's the worst that could happen? Nobody wants it and you self-publish it. Okay, not the end of the world. A blessing that came in 2020 was that when every single one of my 30 talks that I had scheduled for the year, when they were all canceled, I had time to finish the manuscript, which I would not have had time to do it otherwise. And so in April, May of 2020, I wrote 40,000 words, started reaching out to agents, which is not usually successful because they are really only interested in you if you have a couple million Instagram followers, which I don't, or if you're friends with a celebrity, which I'm not. I was getting some good feedback again, but it didn't look like I was going to have success. And I was starting to have to tell myself, you're going to self-publish it and that's okay. It's still going to be a real book. And then a couple crazy things happened. An Instagram friend of mine, I haven't met her in real life. She got a book deal. I just messaged her one day and was like, hey, I have this manuscript. I think it could be really good. Would you be willing to connect me with your literary agent? Because the way that it happens is a book publisher never works with the author directly. They have to go through your agent. Your worth has already proven a bit if you have an agent because someone has thought that your work is worth representing. This wonderful woman on Instagram was like, yes, I think what you're writing is good. I'm going to pass you to my literary agent. 
I went through the whole process of submitting a proposal to her and then waiting, just agonizing over every word if she is going to want to represent what I do and represent me. She said yes, and I got signed to her literary agency. And then the even more stressful part, you have to put what's called a book proposal together. And then she basically shops it around. Does anybody care about this? And the week that Where Hope Lives turned 10 years old, I got a book deal. So in 2022, Broadleaf Books is going to be publishing the second book of mine, which is amazing. And the title? I can't tell you yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a whole thing. No one listens to the podcast anyway, so you and I can just talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, that's a crazy thing of like, it's not just me anymore. It's not just my timeline and my ideas. There's a whole schedule of things that happen. There's publicists and marketing people and all these people that I've just never... I've never had a team behind an idea before. So it's an incredible process. Tell me about the creation of On the Job and Off. So On the Job and Off was officially formed in 2018 after I got to the point where I could not keep up with the speaking engagement requests that I was getting. I've spoken all over this country and I think like 40 states at this point. And every time I spoke, I would share my story And then I would talk about first responders' mental health and I would give education that I thought would have been helpful to us to deal with the cumulative stress that just comes from having your sleep constantly disrupted and being away from family and just having this chronic exposure to trauma that first responders have. And it just got to the point where I could not keep up with it. I was working a full-time job at a nonprofit at the time, a mental health nonprofit in Philly. I couldn't do it. I was having to turn down people. I had the idea, what if there's a way that I can just put this online? Because I also realized that the people sitting in front of me at conferences were usually the chiefs. There's money to send these people to these conferences. While that's obviously important, we need mental health education from the top down in a department. The education wasn't getting back to the boots on the ground firefighters. And I wanted a way for this education to be immediately accessible 24-7 Or if you come back and you have a bad call, you don't have to be sitting physically in front of me to get this education. And so I had the idea to put it online. I put the very first course that we called Capturing the Load. It's our basic mental health awareness course online. We were fortunate enough right out of the gate to get a wonderful uh, partnership with the National Volunteer Fire Council. And they paid to put 1,000 first responders through that very first course. And we had first responders take Capturing the Load from every single state. And we asked all of them questions. Basically, is this working? Can we measure the change in your willingness to seek help if you need it? Do you understand what these terms better? And we asked them what more they wanted from us. What other topics can we talk about? Since 2018, the learning platform has expanded significantly. We have full course menus for firefighters, for dispatchers. Our full course menu for EMS is coming very, very soon. We work with first responders on military bases. Um, The dispatchers at Quantico are members of On the Job and Off. We've been able to reach so many people by making mental health education and anti-violence education that is accessible, that is very affordable. And that was created by first responders for first responders. So even though I find neuroscience fascinating, most people don't care about that. So if I start talking about that, their brain's going to shut off because that's not helpful to them. Every course that we have, every instructor that we work with, everything that's on that platform is designed to meet the first responder where they are. 
how did you meet your husband? And was he a firefighter before you met? And tell me about how you guys dialogue about the job. So we met when we joined the same firehouse. He was a volunteer firefighter in a different firehouse, just like I was in his hometown. He's a career firefighter now. And we have that really unique benefit of his job is not unknown to me as it is for some other spouses. When he talks about a call or just the day-to-day work stuff, he doesn't have to explain it to me because I've also done it. That really helps with just the understanding of the day-to-day stressors that come with being a firefighter, chronic disruption of sleep, and what we can do to help that when he is home, and being able to just have an understanding of the really in-depth experiences that you can have in terms of seeing death, seeing tragedy, and then obviously all the work that I do I hope is beneficial to him because he can have an immediate trauma counselor if that's something that he needs. What would you like women considering or striving towards the goal of working in the fire service or emergency services to know? Oh gosh, I get asked that all the time. And I don't know that I have a perfect answer. I'm not naive enough to say that every place you walk into is going to be a place that deserves you. But I would say to know that even if you are the only woman in a firehouse, that you are so far from alone. I'm a board member of Women in Fire, which is an international organization made up of women and men firefighters of every rank from many, many countries. Finding that organization many years ago was for me just the community that I had always needed because you don't have to explain your experience to those women. You don't have to justify what happened to you. People aren't going to not believe you. You just have a place where you can talk about the unique things that come with being a woman in a job that has been traditionally done by men. And so I think it would just be to know that you're not alone and to know that there is help out there and resources out there whenever and if ever you find that you need them. Can you speak to the difference between fitting in and belonging and how that alters your perception of yourself and your coworkers in the work culture? I think fitting in just means you're fitting in with the culture that you found when you walked in the door. You are changing parts of yourself, taking away parts, putting new qualities on you to fit in with the culture that you found, whether or not that's true to who you are. And I think belonging means that the people that you're doing that job with or whatever environment that you're in accept you because of who you are uniquely not just based on how well you fit the mold of the people that came before you. And I think knowing your worth is something that I was taught really early on. And that is what allowed me to stay so true to who I was and not care to a degree if I fit in or if I belonged. Because I knew that I wasn't going to fit in where I was. I wasn't going to change myself to fit. And I knew that I didn't belong in that firehouse because nobody belongs in a place where they're abused. But I knew that I belonged in the fire service, that I could find a place that did accept me. And I, I mean, I have, I've gone on to find wonderful firehouses where my gender just like wasn't a thing. And I never had to worry about whether I was safe or not. And I just had to wait until I found a place where I actually belonged for who I was not because of how well I conform to someone else's idea of that. It is really hard for rookies to feel like they have a voice on any level. Specifically for females, that would be even harder. So this could be a long discussion, but how do you communicate boundaries? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think in the beginning, the way that I communicated boundaries was very clear and to the point, i.e. don't talk to me like that. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Rape jokes aren't funny. I don't want to hear them. Don't say them around me. That was like a very clear, obvious, like a verbal line in the sand, right? There's other ways to communicate boundaries, which can be you get up and you leave the room when a certain thing is talked about are communicating in ways that aren't necessarily verbal, but still to anyone looking, they can notice that you're at least attempting to kind of draw a line. And I think there's kind of two types of camps here when we talk about boundaries in terms of people seeing that. The first is, I think the majority of people are in this camp as well. When someone draws a boundary, if you make a joke that doesn't seem to land with someone and it seems like it offended them or hurt their feelings, most people would recognize that and be like, okay, I either need to like apologize or not say that around that person or maybe just stop saying that at all. That's, I think, where most people are when they notice a boundary they change their behavior to respect that. Then there's the other camp where when you state a boundary, that just makes them want to violate it even more. They like making people uncomfortable. The second camp, that's where things have the potential to become dangerous and violent. And that's what I just didn't have any experience recognizing when I was younger. But again, I think most people are in the camp that they will respect boundaries. And that's an environment that is a good one. But the second camp of people, which I have interacted with many in my young life, that's when things can become dangerous. We need to get better at recognizing that and recognizing like what our options are in terms of resources and our ability to make ourselves safe if someone is you know, trying to repeatedly violate a boundary. In the face of everything that you've experienced, do you believe in the idea of the family, the fire service? Like, Does it exist? A hundred percent, yes. Every time I speak, I notice that family. And every time I share my story and people stand up and they clap for me at the end, that to me means thank you for still being here. We appreciate all the work that you had to do to stick around. And we're glad that you're still a part of this job because there is so much good in it. On the job and off was 2018. And I had another experience that led me to do something additional um, just at the end of last year, which further speaks to that idea of true family, of people who you belong with, not just that you fit in with, but people who respect you, who appreciate the reasons that make you different. I finished up my crisis counseling degree last year. And due to COVID, a lot of the opportunities for the internship that I had to do were taken off the table. So the only thing that I could do to get my last internship experience was I found myself providing crisis counseling alongside detectives and forensic investigators for child abuse investigations. This was about over a course of six months. And what I started to realize was how many children that had been abused, neglected, or trafficked were interacting with first responders and no police reports were ever made. And I can say that with confidence because I was sitting with the detectives to ask them, why is that? Are we training people to look for trafficking? The prevalence of that is just growing astronomically. Are they seeing the signs and not recognizing them? Are they seeing the signs and not knowing what to do about it? Are they seeing the signs and talking themselves out of it? Where's the gap? What's happening? Because I'll tell you, I will never forget some of those experiences that I had sitting with children who had survived abuse, 
hearing them retell their stories, sitting with the detectives talking about what charges are going to be brought against the abusers, and to even have the possibility that if a first responder was better trained, that we could have prevented that abuse from getting as bad as it was. I mean, that is enough to motivate you to move mountains. And so there was one particular case that was so egregious and made me so angry because of how many first responders had the ability to make a report and didn't. I decided that I was going to create a course that I called the CARES Project, Child Abuse Recognition and Reporting for the Emergency Services. And I got endorsements from major fire service organizations, major social justice organizations, worked with subject matter experts to write a course specifically for first responders. And it wasn't just about recognizing signs of abuse, neglect, and trafficking outside of our fire stations. Yes, it was about that, you know, when you're in the community. But it was also about better recognizing signs of abuse when they're happening in our stations. Because I think what would have happened if a firefighter recognized what was happening to me in a firehouse, although it didn't escalate to the level of sexual violence in that station, that happened somewhere else in a different firehouse. But there were definitely things happening there that would have warranted a child abuse report, 100%. And so I think what would have happened if someone would have been empowered enough to do that, to know that they're not mandatory reporters in our state, which means they could have reported anonymously. So I wrote the CARES Project, and we released it in November of last year. And the response that I got to that from people who I consider, you know, like my family members in the fire service, people who I respect, people who have become my mentors, saying, we want to know more about topics like this. So recognizing child abuse isn't the same as being good at putting out a fire. It's a different sort of skill set. It's sort of outside of the station in some ways. But first responders really wanted to know, like, how do we help these issues in our community? And so I decided that I was going to form a nonprofit called First Responders Care, which we launched in December. And the CARES Project is the first major initiative from that. And I put together a board of people who I consider to be like family members in the fire service, people that I've known for a long time to create a space for those of us who know that we can just do better by people. We can do better by the first responders in our stations by educating them on how to talk to their families about the way that their job might impact them at home, how to talk to them about validating when you think that something's wrong in a home with a child not talking yourself out of that. And what number do you call? What states are you mandated and what states are you not? All that kind of stuff that if we want the fire service to be a family, which I believe that it is, we have to be willing to look at the things that have the potential to tear that family apart. And those are things like an unwillingness to talk about mental health that's killing our family members and the reasons that make People walk into our fire stations and turn right back around and walk out, which are this exclusive culture that can be found, whether that has to do with gender, whether that has to do with ethnicity, sexuality, whatever, race. That's why I've dedicated myself to both on the job and off in first responders care is because I want to strengthen the family that I did end up finding in the fire service, the one that I always knew was there. I just had to work a little harder to find it than most. And now I want to just dedicate myself to strengthening that family. What traditions do you think we should carry forward to new generations of firefighters and what should we leave behind? We need to leave behind 
this belief that we aren't affected by the work that we do. We need to leave behind this culture of silence. It's killing us. It's not serving anybody. And so that I want to leave behind for good. And all of the work that I do is centered around taking these topics that we don't talk about and creating a space for us to talk about them. And the things that I want to carry forward, oh my gosh, there are so many. I just think about all the experiences that I've had or things that I've participated in where someone's family member gets sick or a parent or someone's hurt in the line or God forbid, killed in the line. And the way that firefighters near and far rally around that person, whether it's, you know, your son is having a really scary surgery. We are going to put a firefighter in the waiting room 24 seven for anything and everything that your family could need. The way that we just rally around each other, support each other, be there for our families, for spouses, for kids. That is what I want to keep. And that is what I want to work to strengthen. And we can only strengthen that by changing the things that we're willing to talk about and changing the things that we're willing to acknowledge. I love so much about the fire service, particularly the volunteer fire service, because that's just been my world for so long. And there's so much more good than bad. There's so much more positive than negative, but the negative stuff has the ability to overtake the positive if we're not willing to change the things we talk about. It's quite common across the fire service with firefighters to buffer themselves when they're coming to incidents keep that barrier, hold off any kind of emotional impact. That's been the approach. I've found that integrating empathy, compassion to the people you're serving, connecting with them as humans actually helps me feel more genuine and authentic and process the call afterwards. What are your thoughts on that? I love that thought. You're right. We have that tendency to put up a wall and it's necessary in some capacities, right? We can't show up to every emergency and treat that person as if it's our loved one. We wouldn't be able to do our jobs and we would be so affected that it just wouldn't be sustainable. So you're absolutely right that there has to be some sort of a buffer emotionally. But what becomes not helpful to us or them is when you become almost robotic that you're not treating them like a person. You're not acknowledging any emotion that they might be feeling. You're not treating them as if they are someone who experienced something potentially traumatic. What's the fire service of the future? That is a fire service that is trauma-informed. And that means that we understand being traumatized looks like and feels like either in ourselves and in other people. And we acknowledge that. We don't ignore that. That doesn't mean we show up on scene and we cry with people or we scream with people, but that means we treat them like they're human beings. And we don't just treat them in their physical injuries. We also acknowledge and treat emotional injuries that they might be having. Every firefighter has had this experience or every medic or EMT where what somebody needs is for you to hold their hand. What someone needs is for you to give them a hug. What someone needs is for you to just sit with them. That's what they need. And that's not like super exciting. You're not going to be on the cover of a magazine for doing that. But we forget because we're not really taught that that can be as helpful, as impactful as anything else that we do. I think you're exactly right that seeing someone as a person, as a human being, not letting that buffer down completely where you can't function and do your job, 
But just still saying this is someone who has experienced something upsetting, traumatic, whatever word we want to put on it. And not only do they need me to do my job and perform skills I know how to do, they just need me to treat them like I see what has happened to them and that I'm sorry. That then helps us process our emotions because we're not closed off from them, even from the start. And the idea that we can close ourselves off and choose what stimuli that we're going to allow in from the experience that we somehow have control over that seems foolish. Right. And I get why people think that. And it's not always so much even a conscious thought. I so get why the instinct is to just cut themselves off from emotion. And you're so right. You think I'm going to cut myself off from feeling scared or angry or helpless or sad because I don't like those emotions and I don't know what to do about them. But when you do that, you cut yourself off from all emotion. You don't just cut yourself off from the negative. You also impact your ability to feel happy, to feel safe, to feel comforted, to feel peaceful. We can't just pick and choose. We're emotive beings. That's what we are. And yes, we have to be able to control our emotions in the course of doing our job, of course. But closing yourself off is closing yourself off. You don't get to pick and choose from that point forward. In the work that I do with first responder spouses, that is the biggest problem that they name. He or she is so closed off that he or she cannot even access their emotions to be with me or to be with their children. And that's a problem. It's like assuming you could not smell, not hear, not see voluntarily. Right. Just by deciding. Yeah. Yeah. And there have absolutely been times on calls, I think every first responder can relate to this, where you have to sort of shut your emotions off because what is required of you at the time has no room for it. You have to grit your teeth and you have to do what you have to do. I'm thinking of times that I've had to help pull dead bodies out of cars because no one else could fit in the way that the car crumpled. There was no time for me to do anything other than what my job required of me. But right after, it was also okay to acknowledge that that experience was sad. It was sad for me. It was sad for the family of the person. That emotion has to be allowed to be present. Like you said, you can't just pick and choose. It doesn't work that way. And when there may not be something that we can actually physically do to change the outcome, to save the person, being there for them energetically, emotionally, for their dignity and humanity that can be the thing that you can focus on as doing. So we don't switch out of the doing mode and get into just observer mode. Yes, absolutely. One of the people that I interviewed for my second book was a trauma chaplain. And he talks about the gift of presence. So often there was nothing he could do. There's nothing he could do to fix or to change a problem. If someone had already passed, they had already passed. If they'd been attacked in some way, that had happened. He couldn't go back and undo that. But what he said time and time again, when people, when family members of patients would come back to him months later and they would talk, they would say that the best, most helpful thing that we had during that time was just you being there, being willing to sit with us when we cried or to hear our anger or our sadness, just to be there. He didn't do anything. He didn't change anything. He didn't take some big action. He was just there. And you're exactly right. Sometimes that's all that's available to us as an option of something that we could do. But that can be so impactful and helpful for people who are on the receiving end of that. Let's leave with some advice or recommendations 
when people are looking to get in touch with their empathy, their compassion, learn self-love, self-care, it can be daunting and overwhelming, especially if you've lived a certain way for your entire life. How would you recommend to people, especially as how difficult first responders can be, what first steps can they take and celebrate the wins along the way to eventually understanding how to implement this in their life? Well, I think it's two things. I mean, like you said, like you have to meet people where they are. I can't tell someone, well, I journal every day and then I meditate and then I go to the gym and then I'm set. So just do exactly what I do and you'll be great. Everyone has to figure out what steps they can take from where they are at that moment. And so people are starting from square one. They've been just out of touch with themselves for a long time. They feel like they're just noticing more bad than good, which can definitely be the way in the fire service because no one calls 911 because something bad didn't happen or only there when the worst thing has happened. I invite people to, and no one has to know you're doing this. You don't have to tell anybody on your way home from work or just the next time you have a quiet moment. List two things that went right about your day, about that difficult call. That's it. Just two things. And then after that, list two things that you're grateful for. I know it seems silly or oversimplified or like, what is that going to change? Why would I do that? It does. It changes the perspective in your brain of the things that you're paying attention to. So it's what went right. And after a call where you didn't get a good outcome, because just wasn't in the cards on that day, listing two things that went right can actually be really helpful because you think that person died, that's the end. What could we possibly have done right? And sometimes it's like, well, we got there as fast as possible. That went right. And second thing is our training paid off. We had just done high angle rescue training and it was fresh on everybody's minds. And even though we didn't get the outcome we wanted, our training paid off and everybody did their jobs really well. Those are two positive things that even though you did not get a good outcome or the outcome that you wanted, it just switches what your brain notices. And that really helps when it comes to cumulative stress. And then paying attention and naming things that you're grateful for, even if it's as simple as I can go to sleep in a bed tonight, or I can go get food right now and have a full belly. Those are things that if you're just starting from a basic space, that lays the foundation for your brain to notice some really good different things. And that's when you can start doing more and more work in that space. I like that you mentioned outcome because I find that that's common as well. We're hinged on outcome as if I find out that the outcome was good, then that magically transfigures my experience and there's nothing to address. Well, while you were having the experience, you didn't know the outcome and that's how your brain wired it. Absolutely. I see that with close calls. Close calls where people think, well, he's fine. That thing didn't happen. Well, for about five minutes, you thought that you had just watched a firefighter die. So that space that you went to in your brain, that doesn't just go away because it ended up okay. But there's that whole thing, like you just mentioned, of that, of being so hinged on outcomes that we think if there was a good outcome, then anything that I felt is invalidated. Or maybe you had a good outcome, but for whatever reason, there was a period of time in that call where you were scared to death. You were scared for your life. You were scared for the person's life. That whole close call thing, even if it worked out and everybody lived, that stuff is still super valid to feel and need to talk about. 
So you're right. Getting past that outcome dependent stuff, because we seriously, literally don't have control over the outcome. We can just show up and do our best. And perhaps a mindset that you only feel one, maybe two emotions at once. It's possible to hold fear, frustration, anger, confusion at the same time of being exhilarated, being proud of the work you did. Absolutely. And all those experiences can be correct. If you're feeling grateful for it not being worse, but also really sad for what it was, neither of those emotions are wrong. There's space for both of them. Even if they conflict. Exactly. Even if they contradict, they can both be correct. Just understanding that saves you so much emotional energy of trying to like pick one or talk yourself out of one. Just like, no, I'm feeling two things that contradict. And that's just like being a human. You know, that's just sometimes how it goes. (laughs) How can people find you, your books, your work? The easiest place to find all that I do in one spot would just be my personal website, Ali. A-L-I-W-Rothrock.com. On the Job and Off has a website. First Responders Care has a website. My TED Talk is on YouTube. I'm on social media. But if you want to find like one hub for everything that I do, that would be AllieWRothrock.com. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for your very thoughtful questions. I was so happy to talk with you. 